0: key teachings, the Beatitudes of Jesus that he delivered to his followers in the northern region of Galilee. is a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And Brian and Kentrell did a fantastic job these last five weeks going through the first five Beatitudes, and I will endeavor to do the same. Let's pray first. Father God, thank you for giving us and preserving for us your word, the Bible. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would soften our hearts Open our ears and still the voices of this age attempting to distract us from your truth. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for blessing us. Help us to learn from your word today. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So anytime you read the Bible, you know, we want to make sure we have the context in mind. Although the Bible is God's inspired word written for all time, we want to understand what the authors of the books were going through, what the people were going through. The Sermon on the Mount is what we're studying today is attributed to Jesus and written down by Matthew. We want to know what the conditions of how these folks were living. What was the socioeconomic climate of the times and so forth? What is the background what are they living for what are they living through what's the context of this story so um uncle andrew's going to show you some travel pictures now cassie if you would put these up i had the good fortune in uh, november of 2012 to go to the holy land and i'll by myself it was a crazy i'll tell you a little bit about that later but it was a it was a fantastic trip One of our uh, sisters here, Bethany, I don't see Bethany. The Jaspers, are they here? Oh, well, Bethany gets to go to Israel, I think, later this month. And I'm so excited for her. She's our hostess of our home group. And uh, so I wanted to show you some pictures of the Galilee region to make it real, right, to put it into context. So here, the Mount of Beatitudes, okay? So, you know, there's a lot of commercialization and tourism. Okay, fine. So next slide, please. Here it is, the uh, um, monastery of the Beatitudes, which, by the way, you can't take weapons or make kissy faces or bring dogs in there. But uh, it's a beautiful place. Next slide, Cassie. So it's a fanta- I mean, you know, they, they're not starved for money. They're a beautiful place, and they charge you to go in. It's lovely. It's right on the Galilee Sea. Next slide. Ah, somebody took a picture then, and here's Jesus. <laughs> here's Jesus preaching uh, next slide so here is and I'm sorry it's, uh, we're going to get a new projector but it's kind of light um, that's, the, that's the sea down there okay. and this is the, the front porch where I guess the monks you know, have their coffee in the morning before they go Voom! next slide please thank you anybody laughing okay here's the monastery again beautiful place next slide Catholic monastery, by the way. And here we go. Here's from my front porch of my beautiful hotel, looking out at the sea. Next slide. Now I want to bring to your attention, it is really rocky up there, right? And if you, okay, think back. They didn't have roads. They didn't have shoes. They had sandals. How did they do their farming? The farming that was conducted, that I witnessed, somebody had to move all these rocks. Next slide. All right, Rocky, 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 lots of rocks, Okay, strong ankles at those times. Next slide. And these are big rocks, big rocks. By the way, this is under sea level, all right? So the, like the Dead Sea, which is south of the Galilee Sea, this is below sea level. Next slide. It's arid, cacti, very dry, sun is all the time, even in November. Next slide. There we go, a little bit better picture. Uh, down right at the sea. This was, um, oh, at a, it was at a synagogue, an old synagogue that they found. And I think a couple more slides. Cassie, next one. Ah, the religion of peace was there. And it, I just had to bring this up because in Nazareth, which is the largest church in the Middle East, it's a massive church. Nazareth is just about 40 minutes in traffic to the west of the Sea of Galilee. Right next to the church, you can see it back there. Go back one, Cassie. Uh, right there's this huge Christian church, and they put up this thing saying that we're, you know, sinners. And it's like, come on, we don't do that. Okay, next slide. And here's your intrepid travel host for the next time. Okay, that's it. We'll go back. But look, these are context. It was hot. Think of feeding the 5,000, right, which comes later in the text. Think of, think of Jesus teaching and I was just talking to Jennifer about this. How did he talk without a microphone? It was different, right? Just your body was—you could project differently. So, uh, but it was hot. You know, it's below sea level, and it's—it's um, it's not really a sea. It's a big lake, right? I mean, Lake Erie's bigger than this, obviously. So it's—but uh, it's—it's wonderful. It's, it's a beautiful place. So when this message was delivered and I believe at my very core that it did take place, we find Israel in a bad time historically. The people of Israel were hurting. They were hurting politically because they were uh, under the Roman rule. They were hurting economically due to general poverty. I mean, how do you have farming out of that, right? Poverty, and then the Romans had high taxes, and it was hurting spiritually, which we'll focus on. The spiritual condition of the time was dark, the Jewish sect, the Pharisees, were gaining influence and power, and they were oppressing the Jews for their man, with their man-made religion. The Pharisees were legalists. They were external, externally appeasing. They were mean-spirited. They were grumpy. They were focused on ceremony rather than relationship. Jesus called them out often when he preached for their hypocrisy. All of these negative inputs on the Jewish people caused them to feel oppressed and overly burdened. They were looking for a redeemer. They wanted to get out from under this oppression. They wanted to break free. They wanted to be saved. They knew they needed God. As an example, Nicodemus, who was considered one of the top Jewish scholars of the time, marveled in John chapter 3, When Jesus tells him that you must be born again if you want to enter the kingdom. In Luke 10, the lawyer asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The rich young ruler in Luke 18 asks the same question. They're looking for God. They're looking for a redeemer. And you remember in the powerful story in Acts 16, I think I put that up there, uh, when Paul and Silas, is a fantastic story. Paul and Silas... Were doing god's work they had just healed a girl of demons but her boss her whoever her, probably you know it was uh, not her father was had lost the income so they threw him into prison and in prison and prison wasn't nice back then or is it is not nice today they were praying and singing hymns to god and all of a sudden the great earthquake occurs which causes them the jail cells to open up, their shackles to come off. And the guard, knowing that his bosses would, be, would kill him for letting the prisoners go, drew his sword and was ready to kill himself. But Paul calls out, Don't do it! We're still here! And because of this miracle of the earthquake and the, and the, uh, the miracle, frankly, that nobody ran away from the prison, the jailer fell to his knees And cried out what must I do to be saved so they said believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved he knew God was speaking through him through these to him through these miracles he knew he needed God in his life and then later as the text says I think one more slide uh, they uh, by the way he cleaned their stripes now why did they have stripes as they were whipped so they were whipped and yet they were still praising God and yet they wanted to bring to introduce him to Christ that's amazing so they took him to uh, he took him home fed him and his whole house got saved so how can we be saved how do we enter into the presence of God here we see in the text today we enter into the presence of God through a pure heart Bible scholars highlight Matthew 5, 8, the verse we're looking at today, as the key beatitude. So just to catch up in the first five beatitudes, just in case you missed them here or online, all of our sermons are online today. Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn over their debased spiritual condition. Verse 5, blessed are the gentle, meek, humble, Verse six, blessed are those hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Seven, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. And here today we have verse eight, the pinnacle of the climb, if you will, that you can see God, you can be saved if you are blessed with a pure heart to receive the righteousness that God requires. Okay, here's a spoiler alert. I'm going to keep reading ahead for the next couple of chapters because in verse nine, It is the pure in heart who are peacemakers. Verse 10, it is the pure in heart who are persecuted. Verse 11, it is the pure of heart who have evil spoken against them. And verse 13, it is the pure of heart who are the salt of the earth. And 14, it is the pure of heart who are the light of the world. So Israel was being oppressed by the Pharisees who always compared themselves against other people. Do you remember that parable that Jesus taught? Uh, on the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. I think it's up there. uh, Luke 18, 11. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this, this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisees were smug, It's a great word. They were legalists. They added tradition and works to scripture. They weren't humble. They were bullies in the faith. They had co-opted the religion of Jehovah God. They worried about the external. They were condescending. They would step on your back to get a little higher in the eyes of God. They measured themselves against the worst person. They compared themselves against those who they thought were beneath them. They would step on your back to get a little higher. To get closer to God, they thought. When you compare yourself and take solace that you are better than the tax collector. Better than the drunk next door. Better than the guy at work who's struggling with his duties. Or that you stole less than the Wall Street Ponzi scheme guys. That comparison is too easy. The Pharisees got it wrong. It's not the lowest moral person against whom you can compare yourself, which you can always find. And by the way, people are pointing at me and you for that same comparison. It's not looking over your shoulder to see who you're competing against in this race of life. Comparing yourself against other fallen people isn't right. It's God the comparison of ourselves must be against God. He is the highest being in the universe. He's the creator. He's completely holy, completely sinless. Even when Jesus condescended to come down to earth, to this wicked earth, to take on human form, he never sinned. That's the standard an honest person should compare himself against. God sets the standard, and Jesus here says that only the pure of heart will see God's kingdom. Only the pure in heart get to know God. Only the pure in heart will inherit eternal life. Only the pure in heart attain God's standard. In Psalm 24, David, I'm going to look this up because it's a great psalm. King David writes about how he's in his pilgrimage and how he's going down to a festival in Jerusalem but he is stopped in his tracks by the Holy Spirit along the way. And he says to himself, how am I going to be worthy of the, to be in the presence of God? Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. You see, it's kind of a theme here. Old Testament, New Testament together. Who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, who, nor swon, sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the, the Lord, and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Let me read that again. And righteousness from the God of His salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who see his face. Now I'm gonna continue reading there because it's it's sort of out of context, but it's it's fantastic. He continues in verse seven, lift up your heads, O you gates. So he's talking metaphorically to the to the gates of the, of the um, palace or of the castle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Who's going to see God? Who can ascend that holy hill? Who has the right to be in his presence? Those who have been given his righteousness through salvation. Those cleansed on the inside by the washing of regeneration and the receiving of the spirit of God. David continues in Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. In chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah, the prophet has a similar Holy Spirit moment when he sees God sitting on the throne. This is another fantastic verse, set of verses. With the angels attending him, I think it's up there, Cassie, if you can put it up there. Uh, With the angels attending him, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So I said, Woe to me, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. This is Isaiah. And I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Later in the chapter, we see that God takes away his, Isaiah's iniquity. God purges him of his sin. In New Testament language, God regenerates Isaiah. God saves him. So let's talk about the heart. It's a miracle. The heart is a miracle muscle. We can't live without it. It's miraculously taking in oxygen, converting it to white blood cells or something, as far as I know. And it shoots it all over the body. The heart is used in the Bible to describe the centrality of mankind. The heart... It's the core of us. The Bible uses uh, the word heart 800 times. It's the core of our being. And you wouldn't hear me say to my wife if she wasn't in the nursery right now, Jennifer, I love you with all my, with all my liver. <laughs> no, it's, it's the heart. It's the centrality of mankind. It's the inner person, his or her core. The word heart I mentioned is used 800 times, very often in the Bible. Christianity is not about religion. It's not about what is on the outside. The Pharisees see the outside. God is saying here in Matthew 5:8 that before you ever see me, you have, a lot to, you have a lot of work to do inside. You have to have a pure heart. The problem, what keeps you from God, is the condition of your heart. David knew this. A lot of references to David in this series. In Psalm fifty-one, ten, create in me a clean heart, O God. First Samuel ten, we see Psalm, Psalm. We see Saul was given another heart by God. It wasn't a transplant, but it meant that God changed him on the inside, and it was good at first. But then Saul continuously, continuously disobeyed God by acting as a priest, which was forbidden. God tells Saul that his reign is over for the Lord sought a man or a leader after his own heart. God seeks people after his own heart. Now Bible readers will know that this is a foreshadowing of what will transpire next and we know that Saul was taken down by God and over a period of time David was installed as king of Israel. In David, God appointed a man after his own heart. What made David. Di- what, what, what made David different from Saul? David was a sinner like we are. But as Brian preached a couple weeks back, David acted in a particularly devious ways to get his loyal top general killed in battle just to justify his affair he was having with the general's wife. So David is no different from us. He sinned, we sinned, he sinned gravely, But the Bible also describes the heart of David. his inside his core. In Psalm 16, David says, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be moved. Psalm 57, David writes, My heart is steadfast. He is a man after God's own heart. The Pharisees got it all wrong. Or you could say they just took the easy path. They were all about the outside and admitted nothing about the condition of their inside, of their heart. Jesus tells us it's the inside, it's the heart that is important. The word pure is in Greek is kartharos, from this we get the verb karthazio, to cleanse what is filthy and unclean, kartharsio, from this we get the word cauterize, to burn off, to clean off all that is dirty from the defilement of sin, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those who have had their insides, their hearts cleansed, will see God. That's exactly what salvation does, right? God seeks those who have been regenerated. Those ice-cold hearts have been replaced by God. The old sinful core of man has been taken out. Through a saving faith in Christ, we get a new heart. In Jeremiah 32, God declares, I will give them one heart and one way. James 4, 4 says, Do you know that friendship with the world is enmity? Enmity, good word, to God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. They won't see God because their heart's not pure. That's salvation. God, in his mercy, he cleans out our heart. David cried out, create in me a clean heart, O God. Ought this not be our cry today and every day? Brian lauded uh, scholars in the past like William Barclay who spend a lot of time in Scripture, a lot more than I will ever have. And we also find great expositors and scholars today. John MacArthur is one of them, and he dives deep as he often does, into the different stages of purity. And I put them on your handout, which I think are kind of cool to look at. First, MacArthur says, there's primitive purity. This is God's original purity. It's the purity that is essential to the nature of God. As light is to the sun, as wet is to water, original purity is God. There's created purity, God placed purity originally into the angels originally, into, the, into mankind in the garden. That didn't last long. Third is ultimate purity. This is the purity that belongs to the believer in glorification. As we sang today in that fantastic hymn, we will be like Christ in the future. If saved, we will enter into His kingdom. And then there's imputed purity. This is what I want to focus on. Imputed purity. The form of purity. This is what our verse is talking about. Imputed purity is the form of purity granted to the believer at salvation. This is what we mean by imputed imputed righteousness or justification. I think Cantrell spoke about that. Where God imputes to us the very righteousness of Christ at salvation. God does not require the first three kinds of purity. Primitive purity, because that's God. Creative purity, because that's past. We're all fallen because of uh, Adam and Eve. Ultimate purity, because that's on the other side of glory. He doesn't require all those, but he does require imputed purity with a personal faith in Jesus in order to see him. Uh, Two more that MacArthur describes are regenerational purity through the new birth, through your regeneration. Through salvation, we should have a holy longing and aspirations to love God. The love and the yearning to worship Him. The love of fellow believers. And the desire to love the love and the desire to serve people, right? And the hope of glory. Now, if you think about all those, that's what churches, right? You come to church, you serve in church. You don't have to join a home group, which are great, but you you worry about Terry and Jace and people who are hurting, because when I'm in the hospital, y'all worry about me. That's what it's all about: regenerational purity. Lastly, practical purity: cleansing ourselves from the filthiness of this age, of this of this flesh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. When we separate ourselves from sin and we endeavor to live a practical out practical purity. Many years ago, I was invited to a bachelor party for a dear friend of mine, probably my oldest friend in the, in the U.S. And as often occurs in these events, men will uh, sometimes—I'm I'm sure ladies do too—never been invited to a ladies' one though. Men will Im- uh, imbibe too heavily and visit establishments that are, by definition, filthy. I wanted to support my friend, who I love tremendously, but I let him know that I would be happy to be his designated driver for the night. And when they went, and wanted to enter the establishment, I would just stay in the car, no problem. I didn't do this to be Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, but going into that den of iniquity would have soiled my pure heart that I saw it. And by the way, it was a witness. They stayed in that place about 20 minutes, and they came out grumbling and said, all right, we're out of here. So it was a witness, and I didn't intend it to be. I wasn't, again, trying to do that. I just wanted everybody to be safe driving home. So have you noticed, though, in our culture there's a growing filthiness that drags our hearts from purity to defilement? The postings on the internet where people's filters have been simply ripped off because they're not standing next to you. I fully believe that. You would never say those things to me if you were standing right here. Same the other way around. Or TV shows and movies. I mean, good gravy, movies. That creep up to the line of what God would consider immoral. You get comfortable with the show. Oh man, I love these characters. Or, the, and then, or I love this story and all of a sudden, bam! The writers take you over that line. And they drag you into what is wicked in the eyes of the Lord. Practical purity, which is really the prompting of the Holy Spirit gives you discernment, and the Holy Spirit gives you the wisdom to tell what's right or wrong. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Look at the promise attached to purity. For they shall see God. The Greek verb is absentai. It's continuous. They themselves will always continuously be seeing God. Now remember the context of when Jesus was teaching. He was addressing Jews. For the most part, I assume. To the first century Old Testament Jew, seeing God was frightening. It was even deadly. Who in the Old Testament saw God and lived? Moses, he saw through a veil and he got sunburned. Isaiah, he just saw a portion of God. We talked about that already. Ezekiel, he saw a glimpse of God. Nobody saw God, really. It was deadly. Remember in the Old Testament worship ceremony? When the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he wore bells on his robes to keep track of him. And what they tie to his leg? They tied a rope to his leg, so when he went, poop, they pulled him out. All right, If he were to see God and die. And yet, there was, and there still is today, an innate hunger to see the king to see God. Moses said, show me your glory. David wrote, as a deer pants for water, so my soul pants after thee. Even the disciples said, show us the Father. Seeing God was important, it is important. And God says, you will see me if you have your heart changed. And when your heart is cleansed through salvation, the sight of God is immediate. Christians see God through their faith. We see God in all His glory through the revelation of Scripture. This is why we encourage you to read your Bible, right? We don't just have these handouts with all these verses in there because we like to work late at night to put that all together. We want you to study this, right? We're in a series of Beatitudes. Have you read them all? Read them. Find God through the Scriptures. It's a divinely delivered book. Someday we will see God, like the the hymn uh, said, in His blaze, the blazing glory of God. We will see that. Someday we will see Jesus face to face, on the other face to face, on the other side. But until that day, we see Him through the eye of faith. We see God in history. We see God in circumstances. Believers see God in creation. We see God in providence. I got to go to Israel because some guy fired me. But they gave me a great package, fantastic package. So I was paid to go to Israel. And I have a great wife who said, yeah, go. That's providence. I mean, it was terrible, you know. You didn't want to get fired and all that. But I got to go to Israel. It really increased my faith. And I encourage people to go if you can go. But that's not a a random thing that, that, that had happened to me in my profession. God wanted me to go, and in His all-knowing way, He got me to go. It's not a blob of tissue that by chance or evolution turns into a beautiful baby. It's God. We who have been saved, we fortunate who have been given a pure heart by the definer of purity, now we will see God. We see God in a sense of knowing Him being aware of his presence and his power, purifying the heart. This cleanses our vision of the soul and so that we can see God. What are the signs of a pure heart? Integrity, sincerity, one uh, in whose spirit there's no deceit, a real longing for righteousness, a real love for God, a hunger for purity. These define purity. A pure heart is dissatisfied with our sin. A pure heart hates sin. A pure heart loves others who love the Lord. They have a preoccupation with God. They want to study His Word. They want to continue their discipling all the time. You want to be a living learner about what God says. Psalm 119 says, through your laws through your laws I get understanding. I hate every false way. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Concerning this beatitude, Matthew Henry wrote that Christ came into the world not only to purchase blessing for us. Now keep in mind, this was written a couple hundred years ago, so a little odd text, but Christ came into the world not only to purchase our blessing for us through his redemptive work on the cross, but to pour out and pronounce blessings on us. You noticed every beatitude, blessing, blessing, blessing? The heart must be pure in opposition to mixture, and pure in opposition to pollution and defilement, as pure water is unmuddied. The heart must be kept pure from fleshly lusts, all unchaste thoughts and desires, and from worldly lusts. Covetousness is called filthy lucre, For all filthiness of flesh and spirit, all that which come out of the heart and defiles the man, the heart must be purified by faith and entire for God. So the question is, just like the jailer, what must I do to be saved? Or the question of this beatitude, what must I do to see God? You must obtain a pure heart. It's not possible, you'll say it's not possible for me. You don't know me, I know you, I am you. My heart, you'd be shocked at some of the filth that goes through my heart, telling you the truth. So you'd say, well, it's not possible for me to, or anyone to have a truly pure heart, this side of heaven. That's right, it's not possible. But the good news of the gospel is that if you believe on Jesus' name, if you ask Jesus into your filthy heart, he will cleanse your heart with his imputed purity, and then we will be blessed with a pure heart, and we will see him. And you will be with him forever. Does that answer the question, how do I get saved? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If I could invite the worship team up here, we're going to end. Oh, oh you my redeemer.